0: Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with the incredible Dr. Loretta Chen, her founder and CEO of Sumbler Studios, a leading virtual architectural firm building in the sandbox. An acclaimed creative director, a Straits Times bestselling author, and a respected professor, Loretta is hailed as a force of nature in Asia's Anna Wintour. She was also shortlisted as a nominated Member of Parliament in Singapore and is an international consultant to the investment arm of the Royal Government of Bhutan. In this episode, we talk about being a multi-hyphenate, why creativity and conflict are more similar than they are diverse, finding grace in adversity, the metaverse and a decentralized future and so much more. Okay, it's time to Live Wide Away. Well, Loretta, thank you so much for joining me and being here in person. It's always such a joy having so much energy yeah. <laughs> and just, um yeah, really excited to dive into this conversation with you today.
1: What a pleasure and such an honor to be with you in person. We don't take that lightly or for granted anymore.
0: Exactly, exactly. So reading your bio was, oh my goodness, like I went so deep into everything (laughs) you're doing. It It is just so much as well. And it looks like you've literally lived so many lives, so many different careers, and all of them you've completely smashed out of the park. So I'd love to walk through a little bit of a trajectory of your many adventures and kind of how you ended up where you are now.
1: Wow. How much time have we got? How long is this podcast? (laughs) I think they always say a cat has nine lives and I have 25 cats as I was sharing with you and my husband. So we multiply that by nine. I have led many, many lives, but I think if we narrowed it down, I would always say it comes down to three things that I do. And I'd like to think that I hopefully do well creating, connecting, communicating. Those are my three C's that are really close to my heart. I really first started thinking that I was going to be an academic. I come from a media family. Everyone in my family is an artist, an entrepreneur. So I would say we have a family of educators, entrepreneurs, and entertainers. And so obviously growing up, watching how my brother and his wife was able to forge a career in the media here in Singapore was hugely inspiring for me because they're one of the first two major celebrities in Singapore and forged a path in the entertainment scene. And so when I was studying, I elected to do the theatre and people were like, what? Why are you doing theater? You know, and I'm so glad I did that because that ultimately led me to my path to what's becoming, getting my PhD in UCLA, thinking that I was going to be an academic, but as luck would have it, things happened. My dad had cancer, my, my first partner, so excited. whole other story, which I'm happy to take on, came back to Singapore and started working with my two brothers. So one is the actor and the other is a producer. And I kind of wear both hats because I been inspired by both of them. So instead of going down the acting path, I started honing my teeth and cutting my teeth as a director, but I also started learning the ropes of producing because I recognized that there was a need to create platforms for artists and talent and creators who, you know, wear their heart on their sleeves, but don't know how to make a living out of their passion here in Singapore because it's, as we just chatted, you know, very pragmatic and 20, 25 years ago when I first started, it was you only had a career if you are a banker or a lawyer or an engineer. But even back then, I knew that creating platforms, providing opportunity was so close to my heart. So it went from thinking that I was going to be an academic to becoming an entrepreneur, running the business with my brother, but also directing. And that ultimately led me to directing for brands as well, like Viton and Samsung. And it, began to let me realize that I could fuse my passion my creativity, as well as a knack for providing work and opportunity and, you know, paying my, my team money. So that became a business model that I started actively honing even 25 years ago. Fast forward to 20, I want to say 12, my next big coming of age moment was recognizing that I really loved working with issues that today we call DEI ESG and what had happened was in 2012 I was seconded by the Singapore government to work with the Kingdom of Bhutan and it sounds like such a naive thing to say but I remember going there in my 30s and just being in a kingdom where people are genuinely kind genuinely concerned about who you are the first question is not how much you make huh? what do you do huh? you know, but it's, how are you? Like, how are you, Stephanie? Like, how do you feel today? And I felt like, wow, I wanted to be in this kingdom of happy people in Bhutan. And it sounds naive, but I actually started working on it. I started in 2012 searching for my next big thing, what I was going to do next. But this whole time I was still teaching. I was still an entrepreneur. I was still directing and I was doing all these things. I was still writing books, but I started while I went on my travels, looking for my next home, if you like. And in 2015, I between 2012 and 2015, I traveled extensively to Hawaii and realized that, wow, I really love this little island. There's so much of it that reminds me of Singapore, how it was when I grew up in the 70s. And yet it reminded me of Bhutan, where it's an island of Aloha, And I decided that I was going to move there by the time I was 40. And I was one of those crazy people. If I say I'll do it, I will do it. Mm -hmm. And so at 39, I packed up my bags, just two suitcases, thinking it was just going to be a 90 day trip. And I ended up staying, getting my green card during the Obama administration (laughs) and (laughs) deciding that I was going to make it my home. And two weeks from moving to Hawaii, I meet my now husband. And so the Thinking was, okay, now I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an author. I am a director and I was going to take all of my skill sets to Hawaii and uh, now take on this new role as a wife. Anyway, that idyllic paradise only went for about ran as long for about like five years because in 2020 the pandemic hit and uh, you know there's a whole lot of story you can ask me that question but in 2020 I became an entrepreneur again because between 2015 and 2020 I went back to teaching, became a professor, ran a bunch of nonprofits, worked with underprivileged, underrepresented Native Hawaiian women and did a lot of that outreach projects, even started a program in the state of Hawaii prisons but in 2020 I became a geriatric entrepreneur again. So I'm going to pause for breath there and you can ask me questions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There is just so many directions and so much to unpack, even just with that very speedy summary of (laughs) your life. It's so hard to know which direction to go in. But I think if you, you know, obviously you're multi-hyphenate and you just have so much energy all the time. And so what I want to understand is because at every point in your life, you were never doing just one thing never. you were doing, a um- bunch of different things and doing them really well so how can you be successful at so many things at once and what do you think made that that you could do that yeah like what is it in your your fabric is it just in your energy is it in your your ability to multitask yeah i'm so curious
1: thank you for saying that i think uh, my definition of success is different my definition of success is how much value do i bring to my community and i often always say that i'm nothing without my team i often always like to say that the director is the most useless person in production and also the most important just like the music conductor right the most useless person the person is actually not making any music at all but also the most important I think one of the key things that I bring to the table is my ability to as you say motivate catalyze, see the best in people, bring them all together, be able to negotiate through difficult circumstances where people are obviously not talking to each other, conflict resolution and getting people to see eye to eye and recognizing that we really are better than some of our parts and it's really our differences that make us. I think that's what I really bring to the table. And so I think... The core thread, theme, pillar of my quote-unquote success would be my ability to galvanize people and have them be on the same page, be rowing the same direction and bringing all our gifts to bear. I think that for me has been the biggest joy with every team, committee, group, school, student body, you know, government agency I work with. It's about getting people to be aligned while we are so different. So I would say that is my secret sauce. And to add to that, I think it's always being truthful, being authentic. Why? Because it cuts a lot of BS. It cuts a lot of time because I just show up as I am. I don't need to present and wrap and unwrap myself differently each time. So every time I show up, I'm me, I'm authentic. And so I just think it cuts a lot of the wheeling and dealing. I don't need to come in trying to show you something other than who I really am. I think that just cuts a lot. And I just cut to the chase. It's like, what is this about? And I think I also have a pretty good BS radar. radar. <laughs> I was just telling this yesterday. I think I was talking to Sebastian Bourget, who is founder and CEO of uh, The Sandbox. And I said, yeah, I think I have a pretty good BS radar. So just sitting in front of somebody for like a couple of minutes, I'll be like, I know if they're the real deal. And if they're not the real deal and they posit to want to sell me some more BS and I'm, I'm out of there, because there'll be real people like you that I would really rather spend my hour with. So I think it's also that just being able to be very clear about what your purpose and your vision is to never be easily sidetracked by little gold, you know, all that is not gold or like that little shiny object there. I think I'm able to seem like a multi-hyphenate or be like a multi-hyphenate. But really, if you look into my goal, my purpose, my vision, it's always about bringing value to the community, knowing what my values are, my friends, my family, my pets, my community, always knowing what my end goal is. The directions may be diverse, but I always know what my goal is and that keeps me aligned and almost uh, very erudite and efficient.
0: Mm. No, absolutely. And I think leading a life where your sole purpose, when everything boils down or is still down, is just providing value is a fulfilling life as well. Yes. You know, it, it's not like you're trying to just grab and, and and get after everything that comes your way. It's literally like, what can I do in this situation to provide value? And I think that's such a, an amazing way to. Approach your entire life. Mm-hmm. And I think so many more of us would benefit, and the world would be a much better place if we all, like, also, you know, were driven from that. So I think you also mentioned a little bit about there about like dealing with conflict. And I know one of the things that I read about, you know, when I was deep diving was how people can. Use like creatively deal with conflict, and I thought that's quite interesting. So I'd love to understand a little bit more about how we can deal with conflict creatively, and like how this is such an important part to get stuff done as well.
1: One of the first things that I'm going to return a compliment is that I always like it when my counterpart is a great listener. So I'm going to return that compliment to you. I think one of the first things is being a great listener, because a lot of people here. But they don't listen, and a lot of pe- people are actually listening to the dialogue in their head. So they're already preempting the answers even before they are really listening to you. It's right; like they're already planning what they're going to respond to you already, right? So I think the key first is being very intentional and being a great listener, and the other is recognizing that creativity and conflict are really one the same thing. I mean, there's a there's a reason why you know the Greek god of Dionysius or the Di- is he's he's even the Hindu uh, religion right? You have Brahma that is both the creator and the destroyer. And even in, in Chinese philosophy, Yin and Yang, I always see it as the same impulse. Creators are infinitely destructive; destroyers can be infinitely creative. And so, I think when we approach it from that aspect, we take away the judgment. We take away from saying, "Oh, this person is bad and this person is good." I think first off is to remove binaries, to begin to see that we all have something to offer on the table. It's just like saying, "Is technology bad?" And I'm like, "No," right? So. First off, it's true when we take off our own ego, if we leave our egos at the door, we listen intently, we don't start placing value judgments and everything, that immediately is already 50% of the battle won or 90% of the battle won. The other is recognizing that if we are able to have conflict, it means underlyingly we care enough about something. So I think it's also as an entrepreneur, you need to be eternally optimistic. And I bring that into every conflict as well, that if we are actually having an argument, it means that you actually care enough about it. So then I try to find areas where we are aligned. I try to find, and that's where the listening skills come in. The, the, And sometimes the thing you're arguing about is not really the thing you're arguing about. It's often always something else. And I often want to see where can we find commonalities in between. During the Trump-Clinton elections, I was running a lot of conflict resolution workshops. And this was also during the height of COVID later on, where there was also intense divisiveness between Democrats and Republicans. And of course, Hawaii being a very peace loving country and I was an island and I was teaching at the Matsunaga Institute of Peace. I was running a lot of courses and you probably rightfully pointed out on the art of creative conflict. That inherently, I think one of the skills that I bring to bear is recognizing that in the work that I do, every single person has a point of view. Every single artist that I've met, from the set designer to the architect to the actor to the musician, the reason why they're on the team is because they are also good in what they do, and they're all going to have their own different preferences. How do I begin to bring this like cacophony of different voices and opinions and viewpoints into one vision? And I think having been a director since you know my early you know teens and now my late forties, that skill set. As I said, being able to orchestrate and bring diverse opinions together and have people see the commonalities and the vision we're actually working towards. I think that has been infinitely powerful and useful that I take to conflict resolution in everything that I do from a business deal to directing a production to negotiating with my investors. It's it's really the same skill sets, listening, listening with an intention to have win-win outcomes, listening without ego, and always trying to see the other person's point of view. And people get that, that I'm really trying to see from your point of view and they appreciate that. Mm. And they also appreciate when you set your expectations or your limitations upfront and you come with all your authenticity. And if that person still, even I've done all of that. And if the person still chooses to not, then maybe they're not the right counterpart for me, you know, and and to to be fair, it rarely ever happens. Like if I've checked all the boxes, we usually will come to a happy resolution. And like I said, in the event that it doesn't, then that person is not for me and that's fine.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for going into so much detail. I think, there's always a conflict in, in little pockets of our lives. And so I think it's important to have a more conscious way of dealing with it, which I think is, you know, exactly what you sort of explained. And I'd love to now pivot and kind of dive into your world now that you're in, which is all about the metaverse, Ah! which is so fascinating. So how did you even end up working in this launching some blur studios? And for someone that's new to this, like, how does this tech really fit in to our lives or how will it? I'm so
1: glad I've always been authentic. And I preface it by saying, if have only done one, three things in my life, create, connect, communicate. And the other that I have is I have a huge bleeding heart and I'm so altruistic thinking I could save the world. And so in 2020, because I remember pausing there because I knew this question would come up. So in 2020, I was in Hawaii with Raising My 25 Cats. And I remembered my ex-staff, who is now my co-founder, Ruel, he calls me and he has lost his job. He has an autistic son and he was down to his last one hundred dollars. And he said, What what can you do to help me? And I said, Oh, I can give you a couple of odd jobs and I did. And then he said, You know, at the same time I also stumble upon this open metaverse. He's a gamer. He's an architect. He used to work with me. So we have great rapport and camaraderie. So when he asked me to take a look at something, I look at it very intently. And I started reading up on all the different platforms that were in the early days. It was before Facebook changed its name to Meta. And there were a few that were exploring on Decentraland, The Sandbox. But as I started going into the space, I realized that it was inevitable that we would all be marching to into the metaverse in the next, as we speak, because currently we are already spending at least 12 hours a week on our digital devices. And I will tell you that as a person, I spend anywhere between 15 to 19 hours on my device because that's what my iPhone tells me, like you spend 15 hours or 19 hours screen time. So, and if you look into, you know, the younger generation, for them, their social lives in their digital sphere is so much more important than going out. My generation, the Gen Xers, like, oh my goodness, like we couldn't wait to get a car, get a driver's license and get the hell out right? It's like, that was it. It's like, when you meet people, you go to bars, you hang out, you go to the movie theater, you go dancing. But today, if you look at the younger generation, their digital lives and the relationships that they make and the social connections that they make online is even more powerful and more pertinent and more real to them than going out. I remembered I was so shy when I was, you know, first went on a dating app when I was 39 years old and met my husband. I was like, oh my God, I'm going on a date. And I asked my nieces and nephews, I'm like, how do you meet people? They're like, la, how else do you meet people these days? I'm like, oh, you know, and they're like young, you know, and they're, you know, with the most gorgeous and, uh, time in their lives. And that's how they're socializing. And so I recognize that it's not about us. Most of the times I think the powers that be and the people that make decisions around the table tend to be gen Xers, baby boomers, or even older. But I think we must be forward thinking to always think, where is the next generation? Because the alpha generation, your baby, is not able to make a decision for her life now because it's dependent upon the Gen X or the baby boomer that's making these decisions on policies, on organizational development, on leadership. But if we're able to think for your baby, the alpha generation, then I think we're making more informed choices, more aware choices. And so, with that in mind, because I am a cultural theorist, I started saying that the open metaverse is something that we are going towards. Why? If you look into just trend, not just placing Technology, there's increasingly more democratization of everything. Just even from things like celebrities. There was a time, and I can say that because I come from a family of celebrities where you have like a major corporation that, you know, grooms celebrities. But today, if you look into how celebrities are honed or made, right? We had the era of like Big Brother and American Idol, where it's all about the the community voting the next big idol. Or, you know, during my time, we would all know Madonna or Lionel Richie or Duran Duran. But today somebody's telling me, oh, I'm listening to XYZ Influencer. I'm like, I've never heard of this person. And they're like, yeah, take a look. And I'm like, they have 200 million followers and I've never heard of this person. It's also because the landscape has become so different that social media has really created nuanced, really diverse, different media platforms. You run a media platform now, technically. 20 years ago, it'd be impossible unless you, you're you part of a big corporation. So again, there's a democratization of media, democratization of entertainment. And you're also looking into a democratization of the financial system. Back in the day, you had to be all money in order to be able to invest. In order for any bank to even want to have a conversation with you, you had to be all money. Today, you could potentially go onto Robinhood and be a shareholder. You could go in and buy shares. Even shareholding, the ability to buy into companies, all of this is, is changing and fractionalizing. And so if we put all of these movements to, and, and fundraising, again, back then, if you if you wanted to fundraise, you had to be, you know, XYZ and know some person and be part of an old boys' club or old money. But today you have Kickstarter, you have crowdfunding. So all of these movements tell you that we're moving towards democratization of power. We're taking away or using the tools that we have garnered over the years, empowering the community and trying to provide more options from big tech. And, and big banks and big institutions. And then, of course, you have these big movements of the 2008 financial crisis where people woke up and said, I don't believe in my banks anymore. I don't believe in my governments anymore. If they constantly keep printing money and we have this endless supply of, of money and then we have devaluation. So people don't believe in the in big governments. And then, of course, you have Cambridge and Analytica and they're like, and I don't believe in big tech. So if all of these conflation of all these impulses and big movements in economies happening. So as someone is watching all of this, I'm like, it is inevitable. We're going to be moving towards a metaverse that allows us to have digital asset ownership, digital asset creation, and beginning to have the power to own more of our digital identities. Because It's clear to see the steady beat of human beings wanting more and more agency and wanting more and more ownership. And today, the blockchain technology enables that. So you have the conflation of time, intention, collective imagination, as well as the technology. So I think that's why I'm very bullish about the metaverse. And and so, you know, at 45, I became a geriatric mom again and and jumped into the metaverse and, and founded Smobler.
0: Incredible. Yeah. I think that's a really fascinating look at the current landscape that we're facing and really, you know, especially with like the next generations coming up, just how things change and, you know, I'm very excited about the democratization of all this space and technology and breaking down big tech and people being, you know, able to actually be part of the conversation and be earning for the value that they're providing in certain situations. So I was also curious, since you're so deep in the space now, 10, 15 years, what kind of world are we going to be living in? Like, really? I mean, I'm thinking about my daughter. I'm thinking about, is she going to have her own AI personal assistant? Like, what is, what, what is the kind of world and tech that's going to be good, bad, ugly? I don't know. I think uh, we're going to put another D word there, which is just
1: as multi-syllabic, right? I think it's going to be greater decentralization, uh, movement towards more democratization. And I think that governments will increasingly face a tussle with the populace, right? I mean, years ago, we said that America is the biggest experiment ever and that it's democracy. I think now this concept will be tested amongst all governments all over the world because increasingly with technology that enables us to have flash mobs, right? That enables us to do the work that we're doing now, having a podcast. I think governments can no longer rest in our laurels and think that we have Massive control. Those days are over. And that is also why I think regulators, governments will often always be wanting to because of the nature of their role, they would often have to want to have control. But because technology would now be increasingly more accessible and an enabler, you're going to see communities wanting also to say, I also want that control because now I can have it. And if you don't agree with me, I can tweet about it and I have 50 million followers and I have 200 million followers, you know, and and so I think the power of the community is going to become stronger and stronger. Increasingly, I think enlightened governments and regulators need to see themselves as catalysts, communicators, negotiators and need to be in constant dialogue with communities, with you and me. That the state strict uh, separation between state and people is going to be increasingly dissolved and that there has to be there would always be this messy sort of tussle but i think that need to have those dialogues would become more and more pronounced and strengthened and there would be i think more and more technologies agencies bodies that will come to bear and come to play in this sort of democratised, decentralised landscape, which to me is a good thing. I think it's also human nature that we often always want more choice, more agency. There is no utopia in the world. But if you ask me, as much as I would like to think I'm a free agent, I would often always say that I would still choose to live in a country that is democratic or at least seemingly democratic or at least gives me the most ability to make my choice. That is quite fundamentally human to want to know that we are in control of our lives and our family's lives. So I think you're going to see that impulse being proliferated as well because the technology has now enabled it. So I think the world that your daughter will will live in We'll have more choice and not to say that more choice is always a good thing. So with that, it's also to have more ability for us to provide, to your point, more conscious living, more intentionality, more self-awareness, because as... Spider-Man says, with great powers come great responsibility. The more choice human beings have, the more freedom we have to choose now and in our tech or our choices or our food or our you know, retail, the more, I think, intentionality and an ability to cope with all these pressures because as technology becomes such a huge part of our lives, as you know that now that you're a new parent, cyberbullying, digital scams, but I mean, all of this is going to also be on the rise. So I think as we give collectively more choice, more agency, I think the role that, you know, the work that you're doing, uh, the increased consciousness, increased intentionality, increased search of self-awareness, I think that becomes a lot more important as well because these impulses have to go together.
0: Yeah, which uh, moves beautifully into the next part that I wanted to speak about because I think as we're being intentional and we're being more conscious and not letting technology completely rule our lives or drag us into the dark side of technology, how do we, you know, maintain happiness? And obviously you spent as you said a lot of time in the kingdom of Bhutan, you even did a documentary unraveling the secrets of happiness. So what did you discover? What are these secrets and how can we maintain happiness with all of this change, all of this choice, everything that you've said. Again, like I said, I I can't ask for a
1: a better, uh, you know, podcaster because you've done so much research on the work that I've done. And through the work that I've, I've done, you know, over the years from dealing with, you know, my, my, partner's suicide, my parents' um, ill health, uh, my own battle with osteoarthritis and just the vagaries of life. And then having spent as much time as I have in Bhutan working on the documentary, I realized that happiness is not an endpoint, but it is a state of being. And what I learned from the Bhutanese and also from a lot of people that I respect and admire, it is really having grit, resilience, finding grace and humor, even in adversity. I just shared with you as we embarked upon our podcast that last week was one of the busiest weeks for me as a technopreneur. There was Token 2049 and Smobler sponsored five events and actually hosted three. But at the same time I was in ICU, I was um, signing off paperwork for my mother to be on a do not resuscitate and you know, running in between my events to go see her in the hospital. And in reflecting, I don't even know how I got through the week, but I can say it is with a lot of humor. It is with uh, knowing that I, I go back to our earlier conversation about my values, about my community, about knowing why I'm doing this for, about having a very strong sense of core and becoming uncomfortable with discomfort is so important. Like these feelings of sadness or these feelings of loss to stop putting labels on them. We need to stop saying those are bad feelings. It's bad when you're sad or it's bad when you feel. These are feelings. They're just like hormones. And if we stopped or begin to educate people to recognize that feelings are not bad, it's not just women who are emotional. No, feelings are... I remember last week, when this was happening, one of my vendors, 21-year-olds, texted me and said, oh, you know, Loretta, you know, I, I think that you're very emotional now so we don't want to talk to you. You know, your emotions are raining high and I actually very calmly said, I'm a 48-year-old, emotions don't ride high because I was highlighting to them there was a problem with the smart contracts that they were writing out or whatever. And he said, oh, but you know, you're very emotional now and I said, Emotions don't run high now at 48 and do not posit to know that you think you know my mental state of health. In fact, I'm, I didn't want to say too much, but I was actually doing very well because they didn't realize the extent of what I was doing, but I was, you know, but I was highlighting that this is something that we need to fix, et cetera. And they're like, oh, so I think it's not having the misconception or perpetuating the myth that emotions are bad. They aren't. It is just like your hormones. And once we begin to understand that feelings of sadness and discomfort is part of life. And that was how I was able to function all of last week, that I was able to channel my sadness and my sense of impending loss into recognizing that my mother would be proud of me. She would be proud of the daughter that she raised, that was strong, that was charismatic, that could still go out and care for the world, even as I was going through this. So I think it is about having perspective, having a support system, having an outlet. So I was actually working out a lot especially when I was down because whatever outlet that is, it could be your baby, it could be reading, it could be meditating, it could be running, it doesn't matter. But to have outlets, to have an ecosystem, to have support in whatever way and also just to be be able to sit with discomfort. I think these are real core skill sets that most human beings need to be empowered with at a younger age because we're just going to be dealing with more and more vagaries of life because our work life today, people talk about work-life balance. I always say, forget about work-life balance. Your work is already, it's, it's out of balance. As long as your work is on your cell phone, it's out of balance. So coping with quote-unquote imbalance is going to be a core skill set that we need increasingly.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There's so much goodness there. And I think, yeah, I really loved particularly what you said about finding grace and humor in adversity, because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, like life is hard, it's not all roses and smooth and everything, and and if you can just find that little bit of grace, and yeah. I think grace is such a beautiful word. When you even just like when I think about it, it just calms me down. It's like just be graceful, show grace. up gracefully. Yeah, like, grace and grit. Yeah, exactly, grace and grit. Yeah, two beautiful things, and the harmony of that is just that's what we need. <laughs> need a lot more of. And I read that despite all of your accomplishments, what you take the most pride in is your work with women, the LGBTQIA uh, community, and youth. Ad- Focusy. So I would love for you to just share a little bit about that.
1: Again, I'm enjoying this podcast so much, Stephanie, because you're really uh, teasing out all the things that matter to me. Women, obviously, you know, here I am, hear me role, I think being an Asian woman and having been able to have a seat at the table and be able to lead organizations, as you well know, is probably not a walk in a park to begin with and definitely not a walk in a park in Asia. I mean, there's a saying that I often like to say that. Ginger Rogers does everything Fred Astaire does, but backwards and in high heels. <laughs> and it's so, it's so true for women. We have to take on so much more perceptions that people think it's either we're emotional or we're weak. It's like you can't please the world. And so it's about finding strength and finding other women and other male allies who understand who you are and give you space. Cause I have been talked down to I, one of the reasons why I'm all about empowering women is because I remember how, when I was coming up, I was one of the first few female directors in Singapore back then, about, about 20 odd years ago. And I had, you know, a very senior management. I, I remember his name, but I'm not going to embarrass him. And he's this tall gentleman. And I remember him talking down to me, literally and pointing to my face. Nobody came up to stand up for me. I'm not going to go into too much detail into that, that circumstance, but I remember only one gentleman and I'll give him credit. His name is Jerry Lim and I'll ask him to listen to the podcast. He was the only person who stood up for me and he said, I don't know what this is about, but no gentleman I know talks to a woman like that. And I was like, you know, and, and the fact is that I was in no wrong because, you know, as an artist, I submit my scripts ahead of time. And if the you know, powers that be want to censor me, they had all this time to censor my script for the last six months or 12 months, but they came on the day off, you know, to show force, right? We knew that it's about showing force that I can censor you when I want to on my terms. And nobody dared to speak up for me. it was only Jerry. And I would always be thankful for, for him for that. And so for that, I always tell myself as a woman, like I, I, I knew in instinctively, if I was a man, he would not have spoken to me in that way. He would not have spoken to me and pointed to my face. And so I tell myself that this was something that I always want to do for other young women. So they never have to go through what I did. And I'll share one more anecdote. My first professorial job in a Singapore university, that time I was dating a woman and I was always very open. Like I said, I'm always very authentic. And I remembered my lady boss, she sat me down during my uh, evals and she said, uh, Loretta, everybody loves you, you know, and you get great evals from the students and the community and blah, blah, blah. And she said, but I don't understand, you know, why do you have to be so fake? And I was like, what? Like, I was like, I, I was only 24 and I was like, I didn't understand what she was talking about. And I was like, okay. And she said, you know, but but I don't blame you. I think that uh, you're probably the product of your upbringing, your family and your friends. And I remember thinking, she doesn't know my family. She doesn't know my upbringing. She doesn't know my friends. And if she actually knew my upbringing, my family, my friends, she will know exactly why I'm so warm and so loving and so positive and so full of radiance because that's how I was raised. None of this is fake. This is truly who I am. And I remember thinking, she's so sad to not know the amount of love that I know. But I was only 24 and I didn't know how to articulate that. And this was a young woman seated in front of an, you know, an older woman who put me down and she basically shredded my whole family. And I remember that conversation was preceded by me going to her and telling her I'm being sexually harassed at work. I was being sexually harassed at work by another male counterpart. And she retorted by saying that, you know, basically I I don't believe you because you're fake. Basically she's saying, I asked for it is what she was saying, right? And I remembered while in one full swoop, she just tore down my identity and refused to even listen to the fact that I was being sexually harassed at work. And I just thought when I have or come into my own and find my own voice and my own power and be in a position of power, I would always listen to that woman seated in front of me. Because in that one moment, she tore me down and she said, I basically don't believe you. Because you're probably fake and you probably asked for it. It's is basically what she said, and so that was my one pact that I made with myself: that I'll always listen to the young lady seated in front of me because I know how that's like to be torn to shreds. And two, uh, obviously, having made choices where I dated women, I'm a fat hag. I'll openly say it, right? All my all my gay boys know, and they love me, and I love them. I think that the audacity and the courage to live your honesty. And to choose to be with a person that you love isn't a crime. There's a time and space, I remember in history, where we understand why we need to legislate heterosexuality because you need procreation, you need babies. I understand. So, there's a time and space in history that I can understand why procreating was of utmost importance because you need labor. You need labor to go out in the fields, you need labor, you know. So, so there's a real practical reason you need people to keep having sex and keep having babies. That was the only source of labor. Today, With AI. Today we have massive oversupply of babies in other countries. I wrote in my book, and this is a great plug for mother. In fact, in mother, what I was trying to say in not so many words was that we should have different modalities of motherhood. We are no longer just limited to one heteronormative way of raising a family. Because with technology, with rising health and gender parity and better healthcare, we are able to raise healthy babies outside of a typical heteronormative household. But we're not allowing that because of very state, conservative, religious reasons that are based on very archaic notions where there was a time where you need people to go do stuff. Today, we're talking about AI. Today, we're talking about adoption. We're talking about fostering. We're talking about, you know, IVF technology has been a huge enabler for so many of the things that we do. And so that is why I think the continued discrimination against the LGBTQIA population is completely irrational because What is wrong about wanting to just fall in love with who you fall in love with? I'm not going to barge into your your bedroom today with, with your husband. Why would I? Why would you then want to go barge into a lesbian's household or a gay person's household? What is that to you? I'm not even going to barge into your household. Why would I go barge into someone else? So I just think that these perceptions need to change. And that's why today I'm still a fervent and huge supporter and ally and advocate. For LGBTQIA rights, and for young people, I often just always think, you know, what do we know when we were young, right? We think we know everything, but in hindsight, it's like, holy shit! If only I knew, right? I think when we're young, I often always say that, you know, when we when we're young, we have where we probably have our best eyesight then, but everything was foggy because we we were lost. Today, my eyesight is blurry. <laughs> there's so much more clarity and vision and so i think raising young people to be strong courageous, having foresight, fortitude and, and giving them the scaffolding to become the best version of themselves is really important. I think I am who I am today because I've made mistakes, of course, and that those mistakes made me but I'm also being able to be here today to be interviewed by you because I had scaffolding. Either I consciously found it or I had it but I definitely had my family and for those who don't have family, that is also why I think that's very important for society, for organisations, for nonprofits, for people to Go and provide these scaffolding, because an ecosystem is so powerful and so important. All you need is just that one person to believe in you. One person. I remember I was teaching in the you know in the prisons over COVID, and I also teach Ivy League students, right? So just to give you an anecdote, an Ivy League student and of a prison inmate, and I asked the Ivy League student, "Hey Stephanie, where is the." history of your name. And Stephanie will say, oh, well, Stephanie is um, the name for my grandmother and Julie. I'm not saying it's Julie. Stephanie's from my grandmother and Julie's from my mother. And so, and you know, there's there's always some kind of familial network. I asked my prison student, I don't know, it's a bar name out on my mom's boy I don't know right again it's a simple anecdote but it tells you that even from a very young age they don't have that ecosystem the sense of identity is is never really fostered and so that is why I truly believe that as much as we can I think society has a debt and owes a debt to young people growing up we want to have an able workforce a conscious intentional workforce we need to start when they're young we need to give them reinforcement and as you do as a parent we need to do that too as a society as a community to scaffold to build our young people because if they have those directions in the formative years, even if we go through the vagaries of lives, even if we suffer hard knocks, we are going to find our way because we have those foundational pillars. So that is why I'm a huge supporter of youth projects and I'm a huge supporter of women, LGBTQIA and and youth empowerment.
0: Mm Incredible. And I think yeah, it's so important. I love the idea of like the scaffolding and, and you know, I think that's because then people can fill it in themselves. You know, there's like, they can build themselves, but they need some kind of structure, some kind of foundation and support. And yeah, I feel very similarly, you know, there's been a, a few instances where someone's really helped me and I'm so grateful for that because you don't know what you don't know also. And if you have someone to help guide you and, and support you and take you along. And that's why I also love working with the youth and supporting youth as much as we can, because They're also so inspiring, you know, they've just, they've got a different way of looking at the world. And I think that feeds in, I think when you work with the youth or you support youth, you get as much out of it, even probably more than you're giving in a way. (laughs) So how do you think that we can live wide awake?
1: By first acknowledging all our frailties and our flaws and all our paws, and because I think most times people like to judge other people because they spend so much time, you know, picking the pockmarks on someone else's face. But I think if you spend a lot of time on introspection, on self-reflection, on self-awareness and self-development, you there's a lot of work there to do already. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's never ending. And so I realized that that has been the single most powerful tool that I work on, that I, I am always a work in progress. I'm constantly working to be a better version of myself, you know, the previous day or the previous hour. And I think we constantly have this sort of humble attitude towards life that we are constantly a work in progress. We aspire to greatness. We aspire to virtue. We aspire to beauty. We aspire to health and nobility or whatever you may wish for in your life. But I think it should be an upward aspirational pull, but it should be a very deep and um, core as well that tells you that you want to be centred and grounded to work on the self and to constantly be reminded that, you know, every time you, you point f- a finger out, there are always four fingers pointing in. I think we all can do more work on ourselves. I think that that is how we start a more living awake, conscious living, intentional living, because it, it truly starts with self and self mastery. Because if you can't master yourself, who are you to master anyone else? Truly. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, Yeah. no, it's so true. And I feel like it's such an addictive thing in a good way. (laughs) Once you start doing the work and realizing how much more there is to go and committing to being a life, you know, working on yourself for life and just how much that improves everything in your life, your relationships, you know, how you show up in the world. Like it's just, yeah. And just giving people yeah. Being able to do that to yourself is like, I think one of the best gifts we can give. Yeah. And ourselves. of course
1: it's not being self-absorbed, right? It's being self-aware exactly. and then going out to serve the community. So it's definitely that for me, you know, it's always those like yin and yang impulse. You do the work yourself, you go out and serve the community. Exactly, And those two have always been like my core pillars that have really molded me and shaped me and allowed me to never lose my way. Yeah. yeah,
0: you have to, you know, you can't fill from an empty cup, so you do your work so that you are overflowing and you can give that overflow to others. That's exactly it. Yes. <laughs> well, Loretta, thank you so much for joining. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You are incredible. I have such like a girl crush <laughs> on you. It's just, I love you're amazing. <laughs> so, thank,
1: thank you so you. much, Stephanie. I really appreciate this. Thank you.
0: Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Loretta. Firstly, happiness is not an endpoint, it is a state of being. Having grit and resilience and finding grace and humour in adversity is important. Secondly, I love this idea of when we're young, we probably have the best eyesight but everything else was foggy because we are lost. And as we get older, eyesight gets blurry but everything else is much clearer. Thirdly, we need to build the right scaffolding and support for the youth so that we can have a better humanity for the future. curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at live wide awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.